20 years ago, I ran for president, and I did something then that was never done before. I announced my candidacy on the internet. Political reporters said, who listens to the internet? Who looks at the internet? That shows what pundits knew then, and they're no better today. Today, you'll hear from Howard Schultz, former CEO and chairman of Starbucks, and author of a new book, From the Ground Up, A Journey to Reimagine the Promise of America. He spent a lot of time with us, about an hour and a half. You can't tell a story in a tweet or 30-second segment, and his incredible story deserves attention. So, we're splitting our conversation into two parts. In a minute, you'll hear about his obstacle-laden beginnings. Next week, we'll dig into what a possible Schultz presidential run might look like. And yes, I ask him about a flat tax. Here's something fascinating about him. Even though he had a kind of childhood where you think he would just want safety and security above all else. Instead, he becomes a risk taker. Just put politics aside. This is an inspiring life story every American should hear. And today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works. And for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Here we go. Thank you so much for coming in. Steve, it's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, your life story is fascinating, inspiring, instructive, and parts of it absolutely haunting. But before getting into that, and by the way, your life story would delight Abraham Lincoln. He would love those kinds of stories. But before getting into your life and your extraordinary career, just share with us for the moment the biggest surprise, or perhaps surprise is, since you announced you were considering a run for the presidency outside of the two parties. I guess the biggest surprise has been uh, the level of anger and the velocity of attacks that have come my way primarily from the Democratic Party, which has surprised me. Uh, I, I expected that there would be pushback because anything, anytime you try and do something that's against the grain and you try and take the road less traveled and announce to the world that you're considering doing this outside of the two-party system, I expect that there would be some level of uh, discontent, but not at the almost hyperbolic. Uh, so that has surprised me, although we've weathered it pretty well. And when I'm with the crowds over the last four weeks, what I really see is the interest and the enthusiasm that, that people across the country have and what I have to say. Are you surprised, too, by the hostility from the media? Almost uh, they, they're echoing the Democratic Party, the nastiness, and also surprised that Dirty tricks are already being played in social media about fake sites and yeah. things like that. That hasn't surprised me so much. I, I think, you know, we live in a world right now where you can become quite organized against something pretty quickly. And since the, the web and specifically Twitter provides a level of uh, anonymity and hate and fear, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's part of the world we live in today. I've tried to stay uh, measured and calm and really not get sucked up into all of that. But the media obviously has not been kind, and it's been organized for the most part in a very systematic way, led by the Democratic Party or the oppositions within the Democratic Party to try and, I think, in a way, stop me before I get started or convince me that I don't have a path. They, they don't know you. They should have read your book. Oh. <laughs> um, 
So also about the media, is the media too focused on process and the horse race instead of issues and the environment we're in? Well, I, I think if you take a step back from where we are today, we're about 18 months away. That's a long time from the election. And I think for such a rush to judgment so quickly, I don't think it serves the public interest. Unfortunately, we live in a currency of now where everything is in the moment. I think the catalyst for that has been the rise of cable news and the 24-hour news cycle, which is no longer 24 hours. But having said that, the message that we have to say and what I believe in and, and what's in my heart and what's in my conscience, I'm going to continue to express uh, despite the fact that I realize that there's forces of nature against me. But we'll, we'll wait and see. What kind of audiences have you been attracting and what has been the response of those audiences? Not, yeah. not the party leaders of the media, but yeah. real people. Well, I'm glad you asked me that because it's quite the opposite of what people are reading in the paper or online. Every city I've gone into, and without exception, every event that I have hosted uh, has provided me an opportunity to speak to real people, to listen to them. In every one of these meetings, I ask a question, and the question I ask is a simple one. I just say, is there anyone in the audience who would like to raise their hand and tell me that you believe the government is working well for you and your family and for the country. And I would say, without exaggeration, if we look at in the aggregate of how many people I've spoke to over the last four weeks, I don't think we've gotten 5% of any audience raising their hand. And, and at the CNN live town hall meeting in front of 500 people in Houston, not one hand went up. And so I think the evidence is clear. And what is clear is that we're living at a time right now where people have lost trust in leadership, lost trust in institutions, and the government, for the most part, is not working on behalf of the American people. And that is why, even though I've been a lifelong Democrat and respect people on both sides of the aisle, I believe we're living at a time right now where the level of polarization and dysfunction has reached such a point in time where the level of the need for collaboration, for cooperation, for compromise, for a level of compassion and empathy just seems to be tossed aside uh, for the interest of the extremes on both sides, which is steeped in ideology and self-interest, something that you saw many years ago. Uh, and so I think uh, you know we're kindred spirits in the fact that uh, what you recognized, I believe, in studying the things that you've done and what you've tried to stand for uh, unfortunately, has gotten much, much more, much worse. Uh, and uh, I think all I'm trying to do is stand up and say, uh, we need to have a real serious conversation about these issues because the United States government is in a position right now where it's a very fragile time for the, for the people in the country, and it's a very fragile time in terms of our standing in the world. I want to get into your amazing life story, but recount to us the uh, incident at the Normandy Cemetery oh. with, uh, with the nurse. And, oh, uh, her, thank you very friend. much. For the past year plus, in anticipation of what I was considering doing, I've been traveling not only throughout the country but all over the world. My wife, Sharon, and I went to Normandy and we spent an entire day there, and, and I'm sure you've been there, and it's the kind of experience that produces such emotion, and at the same time, you're in awe of the valor and the bravery and the sacrifice that took place on behalf of American warriors and our allies to save the world. 
when we were leaving Normandy after a long day, uh, we were in the car in our parking lot getting ready to drive away, and a car drove up right next to us. And I heard American voices, so I actually got out of the car and just wanted to speak to them, my own curiosity. And they were from Baltimore, Maryland. She was a nurse, and he was a lawyer, mid-30s. And I simply asked one question, what brought you to Normandy today? And she did not miss a beat. And she said to me, and it was like a spear through my heart, she said, we came to Normandy to be reminded of who we once were. And I think when you hear something like that, that a young couple from Baltimore, Maryland, feels like that they have to go to Normandy to be reminded of who we once were as Americans, to me it, it symbolizes so much of a, who we have been, uh, who people think we are right now, and most importantly, who we once again must become. Talking about what must become before we get to your life story, recount too the incident of the man kneeling before yeah. one of the... Yeah. Well, I had two experiences in Normandy. Uh, the one I just described, and about an hour before that, had another incident. And so I was, uh, Sherry and I were walking through the cemetery, and we kind of split up. And there's 9,300 headstones that represent 9,300 lost lives, 9,300 heroes. But about 100 yards away from the, uh, uh, where I was standing, I saw a figure, and I started walking towards uh, him. And I got to within five yards, and I realized it was an employee of the American cemetery, but he was French. And he was in uniform, and he was on his knees and what I saw and what I experienced was I was just in, I was stunned by it. And what it was is he was on his hands and knees with a scrub brush. And he was hand washing, hand scrubbing every single headstone, one by one, out of respect for uh, the people who had sacrificed their lives. And I kneeled down and uh, felt as if I was tearing up. And I just kneeled down and I just said, thank you. He did not speak a word of English. He just stood up, and even though he didn't speak English, he said to me, thank America. And so here were these two experiences within an hour, a Frenchman thanking America and an American nurse from Baltimore, Maryland, telling me uh, needed to be reminded of who we once were. It was quite an experience. So thank you for asking me that, and obviously it's in the epilogue of the book, and thank you for reading it. appreciate it. It's a fascinating book, and uh, one other thing is, why is there seeming hostility to achievement? Uh, you're a billionaire, so they make it like an epithet, not a person who's built up a real business and done extraordinary things. Is there a hostility to people who make things happen more than perhaps before? Well, I think one, one thing that surprised me over the last few weeks is the way that certain people have attempted to vilify my success. I'm so proud of the fact that I came from nothing and in so many ways represent the promise of the country and the American dream. I think your question, though, is less about me and much more about the inequality that exists in America today. And I also think, in many ways, President Trump has improperly defined the character, the morality, and the dignity of someone not only sitting in the Oval Office, but someone who has been successful. And so he has become the poster child uh, for someone who claims to be very rich, but also insensitive 
to people who unfortunately are being left behind and feel as if the promise of the country no longer applies to them. But I, I think uh, if you think about where the Democratic Party uh, seems to be going and leaning and what people like Bernie Sanders are espousing in terms of a movement towards socialism, I think the greatness of America has been that your station in life does not define you, that economic opportunity is for everyone, and our free enterprise system and capitalism has been a huge strength of the country. But I will say we are also living in a time where I think the role and responsibility of business and business leaders needs to be greater uh, than it has been in the past because the government is not going to be able to solve all the problems uh, that the American people are facing and businesses need to do more for their people, the communities we serve. And I, I think not that we have a crisis of capitalism, but I think it's a moment in time where capitalism needs to be examined but not transformed into a, a new formula of socialism, which I think would be disastrous for the country and undermine the foundation in which the country has been built. Well, you talking about the American dream, you exemplify the American dream. Your life's journey uh, really takes one's breath away and all that has happened, positive, but also the negative, starting yes. out negative. Grew up, as you say, in the projects. You've written and said, I still have the insecurity and shame of being a kid in the projects, of growing up in a family with a high degree of vulnerability and shame, overwhelmed with anxiety. An abusive father, yes, there were moments of oasis going to the Yankee games, but most of the time hot-tempered and seemingly lacking ambition. Your mother called him Mr. Horizontal, mm -hmm. uh, lying on the couch. Never could understand what happened in World War II. And then dead-end jobs, he gets injured, and you get food from Jewish services. Your grandmother, amazingly, turns your small apartment into a professional gambling den. But worse the way she treated your father and mother, the way she bossed them around. You do this, you serve that, take this person there, right. in front of you. Yes. So how did this shape you and not destroy you? Yeah. Well, that's a very heavy question, Steve. <laughs> and uh, what's your essence? Yeah. It's what makes you so fascinating. Yeah. Well, in so many ways, I grew up in a environment where I experienced things as a young child that a young child should not experience. And in many ways, my childhood was kind of stolen from me because I had to grow up very quickly. And I had to realize that what I was experiencing was not normal, and it did scar me. It did imprint me with a level of insecurity and vulnerability and mostly shame uh, because I spent so much of my childhood trying to disguise and hide it from other people. However, it also gave me the motivation somehow to try and get out. And my mother, as I write in the book, had this unbelievable belief in the country. And uh, I try and write in the book that uh, for whatever reason, even though she never met, obviously, President Kennedy. Well, that wonderful incident you describe, you, first uh, the show that she thought you could break out she took you to the bookmobile every week. Yeah, yeah. And so, then, and then one, one, one time, you suddenly get dragged to this big crowd. To tell us about that. Okay, so uh, we did not have a public library in Canarsie when I grew up. We had a bookmobile that arrived every Wednesday afternoon. So from the time that I can remember, she took me by the hand, picked me up from school, took me to the bookmobile. We got a book, 
read the book and returned it the following Wednesday. Well, this one Wednesday, she picked me up from school, and I thought, we're going to the bookmobile, and we find ourselves on a bus. I can never remember being on a bus with my mother and did not know where we were going. 20-minute bus ride, and we walk a mile or so, and all of a sudden we get to a massive crowd. And I can't stand, see over anyone's head. She's holding me by the hand, and all of a sudden we hear the voice of a young senator who is campaigning for president in Brooklyn, New York, and it was John F. Kennedy. And I, I looked up at my mom, and she was glowing with such pride as if he was talking directly to her. We actually got a copy of that speech in the research we did for the book. And he had literally talked about your station in life does not define who you are and who you can be in America. And she took that to heart. And from the time I could remember, drilled in me that you were going to get out and you were going to be the first person in our family to go to college. So that, and that happened. I was the first person to go to college. Now, the, the end of that story, which I write in the book, is on graduation day, when all the kids are surrounded by their family. and This is North Michigan State? Yeah. And you're, 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 you're alone. I had to make up a story because of the shame I felt. My parents could not afford to come to college graduation. And that was another example of, here I was at the time, I was no longer a kid, you know, I was 21, 22 years old and, and uh, still trying to hide the shame and insecurity of not being able to be truthful about what was going on. Uh, but I think the, the end of your question in terms of the answer is all of that drove me to realize that my experiences in life gave me a level of empathy and compassion. And so everything I've tried to do at Starbucks was to try and build the kind of company my father never got a chance to work for in terms of the dignity of work, and also create programs that, for the most part, did not exist, which was comprehensive health insurance 20 years before the Affordable Care Act, equity in the form of stock options, which was ownership for everybody, and then three years ago, free college tuition. And what we demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt is that you could build a great enduring company and balance profit with responsibility and take care of your people. And so I'm extraordinarily proud of that. Uh, I want to get into that because uh, you did some really pioneering things, especially with ASU. Yes. You had a $1,000 grant you'd give to your partners, you call your, your people. Yeah. Nice, but a drop in the bucket going nowhere. But a little later, I wanted to get into how you actually made this thing work, where sure. it actually became a reality instead of, oh, nice thing. Right. but not make it uh, happen to real people. Just quickly, a couple of things that I think people need to understand about your childhood. Your parents had you deal with bill collectors. They'd call up and yeah. they'd say, Howard, answer the phone. We, we can't answer it. Describe quickly uh, the two bar mitzvahs. Okay. Your bar mitzvah and then what happened to your brother's bar mitzvah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were a number of surprises along the way of my childhood. First is... Uh, the rent was $96 a month for the two-bedroom apartment in the late 50s and early 60s. And from time to time, my parents could not make the rent and couldn't pay the bills, phone bill, electric bill, whatever it might be, and phone would ring. And my mother or father would actually put me on the phone. I'd be right in front of them, and they'd ask me to lie and make up a story. That just became part of what I had to do, and it almost became normalized, which is unfortunate. When I was 13 years old in a Jewish religion, you become a man and you're bar mitzvahed in 
if you're lucky enough, you have a party, and my parents had a party they could not afford for whatever reason, trying to demonstrate to other people that they had more than they had. At the end of the night, in the Jewish tradition, people give you money. And the envelopes. The envelopes. Yeah. And so I, I was getting a lot of envelopes, and I was giving it to my father because I couldn't hold it any longer. And at the end of the night, I, I asked him, where, where, where's the money, Dad? And he basically said, that's the money that's going to pay for the bar mitzvah. Instead of your college. Yeah. And so I, there was no money that came my way. Eight years later, I'm in college, and I come home from my brother's bar mitzvah. And unbeknownst to me, the scene is replayed again eight years later. But this one has a twist to it. And the twist is when they counted up all the envelopes for my brother's bar mitzvah, there was not enough money to pay for the party. And what I did not know at the time is my father went to the loan sharks to pay for the bar mitzvah. $5,000. Yeah. And my mother was hysterical crying that night saying, literally these words, the Shylocks are going to come for your dad tomorrow. And it's going to be really bad. And it's going to be brutal. And I need you to do something. I need you to go to a family in the community of Brooklyn that we knew. The only family that we knew had money. And we need you to go and ask them for $5,000. You couldn't possibly imagine the situation I was in because the shame. I knew the Levies. I had worked for them as a kid. And I, I could not refuse because my father was going to get beat up. It was one of the worst experiences I had. I went to them. They lent me the money. I gave it to my parents. And then yet another story about this. My father passed away in 1988. And at his funeral, uh, something happened that just couldn't, I couldn't believe. The note. We're leaving the funeral, and Mrs. Levy comes up to me, who I had not seen since that experience. And she hands me my father's IOU that had never been paid in his handwriting. And one, I was incredibly embarrassed. Also, the timing of that was just brutal. 24 hours later, I paid Mrs. Levy, the $5,000 with the interest that went back to maybe even 15 years before that. And so even in death, I was paying off the debts of my father. And once again, another experience that produced a level of shame. And one other thing which you described before, you dissed your mother at age 15. You don't remember the incident. It was the F word off, yeah. which is all common use. But you did yeah. it, and you're in the shower, and yeah. your father comes home. One thing, Steve, you really read the book. I can tell you that. Oh, it's great. <laughs> so thank you so much. <laughs> that was fascinating. Uh, so when I was 15, I don't know exactly why, but I was very disrespectful and used the F word to my mother in the afternoon. My father always came home for work, dispirited, somewhat bitter, detached. And I think it had a lot to do with how he was treated in the workplace. And also, I never knew what, exp what, what happened to him in the South Pacific in World War II. Never would talk about it. In any event, that afternoon, I was taking a shower. And all I can remember is the shower being swung open and my father, with his fists, uh, beating me to a pulp in the shower. And um, I could not go to school for a couple of days. And, for whatever reason, there was never any acknowledgement of 
the incident from either my father or my mother. One of the poignant words you wrote in the book about your mother who believed in you was you felt an unspoken vow had been broken. Yeah. So my mother thought always stood up for me. But, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, more often than not, the wife or the mother was very subordinate to the husband and the father. And there was, this was no different. My mother did not work at the time, and my father was in charge. And she, in many ways, was complicit with what I experienced then and what I experienced earlier on. And it was never discussed. It wasn't discussed that day, and it was never discussed for the rest of our lives. And that was a you know, very tough experience. And that wasn't the first time, but it was certainly the most brutal. You showed some entrepreneurial spirit at uh, that age, how you got into North Michigan State, that yeah. video you created, which yeah. you the Joe Namath in, 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 in the making. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, I played high school football. I wasn't the best athlete, but I was the kid on the field that would just do anything and showed so much heart and effort. And we had a high school assistant who filmed all our games. And I went to him and I said, could you in any way produce some of the things I did well throughout the year? And he said, sure, no problem, and he did. And so I, I sent it to a number of schools, but unbeknownst to me, there was a assistant football coach named Frank Novak who was in New York scouting a few players. And I sent him the film and he invited me to Northern Michigan. And all I had to do was make the team and turned out I could have made the team in a different position, but not in the position that I had played, which was quarterback. And uh, I also realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was, but it was my ticket to Northern Michigan. That's how I got there. I stayed there for four years. I worked. I gave blood. I did anything I could to stay in school. Well, that's the thing. You lose the scholarship, but you still found a way to stay. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think, thought about this many times, Northern Michigan is far away from New York City and Brooklyn. I needed to escape. I needed a new beginning where I wasn't known. Well, you made it clear to your mother you were not going to go to a city college. You, yeah. you wanted to get out. Yeah, I, I could have gone to Baruch or Brooklyn College or City College. I, I, I needed to get out. I wanted to experience a new life, and I just felt like I needed a new path. Well, you, uh, so you find a way to graduate. Yeah. You go back home to New York. You uh, get a job with Xerox. Yes, highly prestigious company. Your mother's so proud of you. Describe first what you learned from sales, cold calling, and uh, uh, how how that uh, affected you. You you, uh, learned to take rejection. Cold calling is a tough school. Well, Xerox at the time uh, was a highly respected pedigree company, and so getting that job was fantastic for me. Uh, I went to Leesburg, Virginia for their training school and came back as a real professional salesperson. However, for the first six months of everyone's job at Xerox, you're basically making 50 physical cold calls a day in New York City office buildings. There wasn't any security at that time. You could just walk in a building. And I had to make 50 50 physical cold calls a day. And I would say 49 of them, if not 50, was a no. And uh, if you were lucky enough to get a lead, you had to hand it to the salesperson in in the territory. But it did teach me a lot about humility, the interpersonal skills required to talk to people. And I did that for six months. And then I got my own territory. My time at Xerox 
was a wonderful experience. I just realized while I was there that the rules and the, the discipline was not consistent with this hunger I had for something entrepreneurial. Well, here you had a background where people would think security would be above everything. You know, nice company, prestigious, yeah. real salary. Your parents were proud of you. Your yeah. mother was proud of you. Yeah. Making thousands of dollars, commissions on top of it, and you left. Yeah. And in fact, when I told my mother I was leaving Xerox, she started crying. <laughs> uh, she just could not believe I was going to leave. But I, I had this burning desire uh, to do something else. I also realized if you stayed with Xerox five, six, seven years, it was going to become a 20, 30-year career. Not that that would be bad. It just isn't what I wanted. And so I was looking for something else. And I, I found, through a friend, a Swedish company that was starting a U.S. division and became their general manager. And that company, the small Swedish company, to kind of fill in the blanks, sold a product to a small coffee company in Seattle. I had never been to Seattle. And on a trip to the West Coast, found myself in Seattle on this majestic day. The sun was shining, snow-covered mountains. It was beautiful. And walked into the small coffee store called Starbucks in a Pike Place Market. For a purpose of identification, we'll call it the old Starbucks. Yeah, the old Starbucks. And I remember just walking in there and feeling like, wow, this is something extraordinary. It really speaks to me. And at the time, I was dating my girlfriend, who's now my wife, for the last 36 years. And I called her up and said, I just, I just found this place where I think we should live. And it was Starbucks in Seattle. And that ended up turning into the fact that we moved to Seattle in 1982, drove cross country. Starbucks at the time had about four stores. It was a wholesaler selling yeah. equipment and bags of uh, beans. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, they only sold coffee by the pound for home consumption. And then a year later, they sent me to Italy. This is your, the epiphany of your life. Yes. You go to Italy. Yeah. Tell us what you found, how the Italians, and, and uh, go, go, go ahead. Oh, sure. So, so the founders of the company, you know, people think I'm the founder of Starbucks. I wasn't. They sent the me old to, Starbucks. A, to a trade show in Milan, consumer goods trade show. Never been to Italy before. So I walked the city of Milan on my way to the trade show every morning, and I was being intercepted by these extraordinary coffee bars. You know, and if you've been to Milan, and they're everywhere. And I walk in, and I was just taken with the theater, the romance of espresso, and the sense of community that existed. And the epiphany for me was, although Starbucks was in the coffee business, they were, they were not in the right part of the business, which should have been the beverage, the expression of the beverage. So the long story short is I raced home and said to the owners, I've, I've seen the future. This is it. We got to convert the business, transform it to what the Italians are doing. And well, you, you said the Italians elevated a commodity into an art. They understood the emotional relationship with coffee. Before describing it, when you decided to do it on your own, describe uh, first. You realize there's more to food than serving food. The piece of pie you got from Horner and Harder. Oh, okay, as a kid. So now we're going back to an earlier part of my childhood. My, my aunt took me to Manhattan from Brooklyn as a kid for the first time to Radio City Music Hall. And after we went to Radio City, she took me to eat something. And she took me into what now no one knows. I'm really, we're going to date ourselves here. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so it was the Automat, which was the, and the brand was Horn and Hearted. And what the Automat was is an opportunity to walk in and you see windows of food 
and basically it's a it's a modern day vending machine where you put a quarter into this little box of glass that you see and you open it up and you get a piece of pie and i was just struck by this and i said to my my aunt at the time how did that happen and she said there's a magician behind the wall and what struck me then and i've spoken about this it was the first time i realized what it meant to be a merchant as a retailer and when people ask me if i have any skill whatsoever my skill really in business has been i'm a storyteller but i'm a storyteller through the lens of a merchant and that has been the the essence of starbucks so you you come back from milan yeah your partners say they don't want it but uh, you say you're going to go out and do it, and they, they're they supportive. They give you 250000 Then you go to a family, get quick 100000 say, why didn't I do this before? Three fifty quick. Yeah. And then a year of total brick wall. Yeah. And it looked like it couldn't happen. And describe that, and was it your experience at Xerox that kept you going? Yeah. And then describe the walk with your father-in-law. Okay. So I, I left Starbucks to open up my own Italian coffee bar company. Called Il Giornale. Il Giornale, named after the Italian newspaper in Milan. Uh, we opened up a few stores, and uh, we're, we're doing okay, not great, but we have to raise more money. And oh, well, first, uh, raising the original, 1750000 It took a year. Yeah, t- 242 people turned me down. Uh, and, and your father-in-law takes you out on a walk with the dog. Yeah. Showing us, I think, the name yeah. was. And uh, says, even though he's an entrepreneur, yeah. he's somebody you respect. He says, in effect, give yes. it up. Get a real job. So Sherry was pregnant with our first child, eight months pregnant. And her earnings were supporting you. Right. I didn't have a salary. I could not afford to pay myself during this period. Couldn't raise any more money. And my father-in-law, great man, takes me on a walk, sit on a park bench literally, and turns to me and says, listen, my daughter's eight months pregnant. She's working, earning a salary. I respect what you're doing. But I think it's a hobby, Howard. You gotta get a job, you gotta get a real job. And uh, I literally started crying on the bench. I was so embarrassed and went home that night. I didn't know if Sherry knew about this. So 10 o'clock at night or so, I say to her, something happened today, we need to talk about. She knew nothing about it. She was upset uh, that her father did that. And she, at that moment, if she would have said, listen, I agree with him. I think we got to we got to do something different. But she was resolute in saying we are going to stick by this. We will raise the money. We'll find a way. And if it wasn't for her, Starbucks wouldn't exist. And then there was another angel along the way, which is another story when I almost lost Starbucks. I want to get to that. But yeah. uh, first, the great quote of yours, you say just because others can't see your vision doesn't mean that vision isn't achievable. Yeah. And uh, so you uh, get this thing going. You raise the $1.7 million, And from the get-go, you offer health insurance. Yes. Because even though you're losing money, you wanted a company where if a person like your father worked at it, yeah. there'd be coverage. Because I experienced the loss of health insurance as a kid when my father got hurt on the job and fired, no workman's compensation, and the shame of what took place then. And, and I wanted to do that for my dad. Of course, everyone said that couldn't be done. It would be too expensive, but we proved we lower attrition rate, higher performance, and the culture and values and guiding principles of the company was the secret sauce. So then we get it going, and all of a sudden something happens. And we're 
Starbucks wants to sell. Yeah. They give you a certain period of time to do it, and then so you're really rocking, and then you get the crisis up to then of your life. Yes. One of the investors tries to steal your company. Yes. Describe that and who rescued you and uh, what you learned from that. This Amazing is, story. Yeah, this is a, uh, you can't make this stuff up. So Starbucks got into financial trouble. The founder came to me and said, of all the people I think who could maintain the, the culture of the company, it's you. We'd like you to buy the company. So it was, the good news is I had an opportunity. The bad news is it was $3.8 million. I had no money. He gave me a 60-day exclusive to try and raise the money. Halfway through, he came to me and said, how are we doing? I said, I've got half of it raised. I'm sure I'll find the other half. I didn't know how, but I, I said, just give me another 30 days. And he said, we, how we got a problem? One of your investors of Ildranali has come to us with a $4 million all-cash offer, no due diligence, and is willing to close in a week. And I, I just think we're going to have to take it, Howard. And I said, that's impossible. How could that be? You gave me an exclusive. It turns out the guy who was a titan in Seattle, a titan, literally tried to steal it from me. And I was heartbroken. I told the story to a good friend of mine who was a young lawyer who said to me, you've got to come to our office tomorrow and talk to our senior partner. And I, I said, I'll, I'll talk to anyone. Who, who is it? And he told me a name, but I, I didn't even, at that time, the name meant nothing. And the name was Bill Gates Sr., who at that point was just another name. I went to see him in the morning. Bill Gates Sr. is six foot seven, a giant of a man. At the time, he was the lead lawyer in town. I sit down with him, and he, he just says, I'm going to ask you two questions. Is everything you told me true? I said, sir, yes, everything. And have you left anything out? I said, no. And he said, I want you to come back in two hours. I had no idea what was going to happen. I just leave in two hours. I come back. My heart is palpitating. I don't know what's going to happen. And he said, we're going to go for a walk. And I said, Mr. Gates, where, where are we going? And he said, we're going to go see the man. And literally, we walk across the street. I don't know if Bill Gates called him. I don't know anything. We literally storm into the office. Bill Gates Sr. walks into him, stands over his desk, points his finger at him and says, you should be ashamed of yourself for you to do something like this and steal this kid's dream. So this is what's going to happen. We're going to walk out of here. You're going to stand down, and Howard's never going to hear from you again. And I, I just, I'm just like, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't, but but I didn't, that, uh, the, the chutzpah, the guy then, starts yelling at you. He's going to run you out of town. You're going to be dog meat. Describe yeah. that. I mean, he's stealing your company, and he blames you. He starts yelling at me and says, I'll never work again in Seattle. Meaning you. Yeah. And regardless of what Gates says, this is going to be a disaster for you. Gates kind of shuts him down. We walk out. I say to myself, this must be how things get done. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and Bill Gates Sr. says, I'm going to help you buy the company. My son and I are going to help you. But here's the, the essence of this story is not only what I just said. The essence is for 30-plus years, Bill Gates Sr. never told a soul of the generosity and what he did for me. The lesson was not only that he had my back, but the humility of the man, that he never, he didn't send me a bill, and he never told anyone what he did. And to this day, and although Bill Gates Sr. is getting old, you know, I see him time to time, and it was almost as if, you know, it was a, no big deal. And I, to me, he saved my life. 
So what lesson did you take for that in terms of uh, dealing with other people and going that extra mile? I've tried to take that lesson throughout my life and do everything I could to help that next kid, whoever that might be, and to have the temperament of humility that Bill Gates Sr. demonstrated to me.